This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Oh, hi, greetings from Calcutta. Oh, my name is Devashish Roy Choudhury. I'm a journalist and co-author of a recent book titled To Kill a Democracy, India's Passage to Despotism. I recently wrote an article for Persuasion on the slow death of Gandhi's India. It explains how India's Hindu nationalist government led by Prime Minister Modi is slowly dismantling the pillars of inclusive democracy on which India was founded. Now, anybody who cares about democracy anywhere in the world or should care about what's happening in India. I wrote the book as well as this persuasion essay to tell the wider world about it. India has a population of 1.3 billion people. And if India ceases to become a multicultural democracy, it will be a major setback to the idea of democracy itself. If India transitions to despotism, uh, the democratic world will be in the minority. Democracy will lose globally if it loses in India. So I hope you will read the article. It's again titled The Slow Death of Gandhi's India, or to understand just how democracy is crumbling in India and what lessons it has for the rest of the world. I hope you find it thought-provoking. Thank you for your time. Debashish Rao Chaudhary's piece, called The Slow Death of Gandhi's India, was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community. My guest today is T.M. Scanlon. Tim, a former teacher of mine, was at the time of his retirement the Alfred Professor of Moral Philosophy at Harvard University. He is one of the most eminent living moral philosophers and the author, among other works, of What We Owe to Each Other, which was heavily featured in an early episode of The Good Place, as some of you may remember. The point of this conversation really was to think about the philosophically liberal conception of morality. We often talk on this context about liberal political institutions like checks and balances, liberal values like free speech, and we touch on some of those. But really what I wanted to get on the table is one of the most interesting views of how liberals should think about morality more broadly. And so the conversation we had touches on big issues like how to deal with the pandemic down to seemingly small issues like whether or not you have an ethical duty to shop at your local bookstore rather than ordering a book. Say my next book that's about to come out, The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure, whether to buy that at the local bookstore or to order it on Amazon. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Tim Scannon, welcome to the podcast. 
Delighted to be here, Yasha. Pleasure to see you. So your most famous book is called What We Owe to Each Other. And it's so famous, in fact, that it was heavily featured in a television show that many people will have seen called The Good Place. How, as a moral philosopher, do you start thinking about what we owe to each other? And why is that a question that is important for us to ask? Well, one of the oldest questions in moral philosophy or in any kind of philosophy is why be moral, right? You go all the way back to Socrates in Plato's early dialogues. He's trying to answer the question, why should you not uh, tell a lie or contribute to the imprisonment of an innocent person if you can get some great advantage or avoid some awful thing from it? Almost all of us think that morality is important, but there are two questions about it. One is, I think people aren't very clear about how to think about exactly which things are right and wrong. We have some fixed ideas, but when we get into uncertain territory, there's a question, well, what kind of thinking am I engaging in, right? So maybe that's not a problem that worries most people, but that's the kind of problem that worries a philosopher, right? The philosophy for me got going because this is a subject where I can spend all my time thinking about the things that puzzle me, right? I'm inclined to think this, but why think that? What am I going? So that's the one question. What kind of thinking is involved in reaching conclusions about what's right and wrong? And by the way, to interrupt for a second, I remember you telling me once that the best way to find a topic you should write about as a philosopher, but I think this actually is true for writers more broadly, is if you're genuinely puzzled by a question, if you genuinely don't know what the right answer is, but that is where the generative work happens. Uh, that's certainly what I think, Yasha. And, and the other question you're puzzled about is, why is it so important? I mean, that's one of the questions that Socrates was interested. So there are different answers to this question out there, obviously, but those are the things I was puzzled about. So I got the idea back in 7980, when I was visiting in Oxford as a guest of Derek Parfit, this idea of contractualism, that when we're thinking about right and wrong, what we're thinking about is what kind of conduct would be permitted by principles that I'd actually defend to other people, that they would actually have reason to accept. That's a gateway, it seemed to me, to approaching both of these problems. That is, it's a gateway to thinking about what's the kind of reasoning that we're involved in when we're trying to settle a question of right and wrong. And it's also a gateway into the question about why is the answer something we should care about. And I think it's something we should care about because we care about being in that kind of relation with other people. That is, we're treating them in ways they couldn't reasonably complain of, as opposed to they can complain about this, but I'm going to turn a deaf ear to that, or I'm going to you know, force them to accept it, whatever, right? I think people don't want to stand in that relation to other people most of the time. Anyway, so this idea seemed like a gateway into that. So I thought that I was going to write a book that year. Of course, I just wrote one paper called Contractualism and Utilitarianism, which elaborated this. And I said that I was giving an account of morality, what I called it. Well, the years went by when I was trying to turn that paper into a book. I gradually realized that what I was thinking about wasn't an account of morality as a whole, because number one, a lot of people think that sex is central to morality. That is not just that rape and deception are wrong. Now, I don't think that's true, but it's at least a coherent thought. But closer to home, I think it would be wrong of me not to take care of my children. But the answer to that isn't given by, you know, well, I couldn't justify principles <laughs> that allowed me not to do that, right? And I also think that there'd be something wrong with me if I didn't in my life, try to do something, put some effort into learning something and trying to do something. And the reason for that isn't that, well, it'll benefit other people and they have a claim on me. It's that that's something worth doing, right? And it's a moral failing to be simply bone lazy because I'm failing to see something worthwhile. So those things to me are moral questions. So I concluded 
that the idea of contractualism, about morality being founded or on the idea of what we could justify to other people, isn't the whole of what's normally called morality, even for me. It isn't the whole of it. It's a subpart. And it's not just justice, because it doesn't have to do simply with political institutions, but it has to do with a lot of our relations with each other. And it's different from these other things. And it doesn't have a name, it seemed to me. So what we owe to each other was a phrase that came to my mind as the name for this, I thought of as a subpart of morality. Now, you might say that there's a fair amount of hubris and maybe a Charlie Brown-like goalpost moving here. You know, I put up this theory of morality. I discovered that there was a lot of morality that it didn't fit. So I changed the goalposts, right? I said, no, I'm not trying to spend all of morality. I'm just trying to explain this part, namely the part that my theory is going to get right. <laughs> that would seem like <laughs> cheating. But in fact, when I thought about it, it seemed not to be cheating because if we're trying to answer Socrates' question about why should I care about this, people do have a reason to care about the justifiability of their actions to others, and that covers a lot of morality, but not being bone lazy and these other moral failings are things we have reason to care about, which are different. So it seemed to me that once I focused on it, that morality you know, broke up into different parts, depending on the, as it were, the reason we had to care about it. And what we owe to each other was my name for the particular part that I was interested in. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So just to break down a little bit, so my understanding is that the question of is there something I'm doing wrong and perhaps morally wrong if I never have some huge talent that I never choose to cultivate, there you would say that is a moral feeling, but it's not something I owe to somebody else. Perhaps it's something I owe to myself. And there may be certain questions about how to live, which have a more theological framework or questions of sex may have other kinds of dimensions. And what you're specifically interested in here is when I engage with somebody else in the world, what is it that they can reasonably expect of me? And so I guess the question becomes, you've started to tease it, but I want to go a little bit deeper into it. Why should I care? And the traditional challenge to any moral philosophy is that of you know the proud egotist who says, I'm just going to do everything that's in my interest. I'm going to do whatever I want. What do I care what I owe to others? As long as I can get something out of it, I will do it. And your answer seems to be that traditionally philosophers have often tried to derive some kind of first principles response to it. And it sounds to me like you're not exactly doing that. You're saying, well, look, actually, most people just don't want to live like that. Most people don't want to go and stand in relations of conflict with each other and abuse of people. And so if you get going with a moral enterprise, if you don't want to treat others in ways that are unjustified, if it's not the vision of life you want to embrace, then what should you do? Is that right? What's your response to that worry about the committed egotist? It would be naive to deny that there are people like the person you mentioned, that is, who just don't care, right? In the extreme, it's a kind of sociopath or something. But I think that the largest number of people really do care about the aspect of morality that I'm talking about, that is ability to justify their actions to others. And I think this is illustrated by at least my analysis of our contemporary politics. 
there was a symposium on my book at the American Philosophic Association when it first came out. And one of the commentators was David Gautier, a philosopher who wrote a book that was in some way similar, but defended much more uh, right-wing, uh, closer to libertarian view, right? He's a friend, and he loves exaggerating. And he said, when he started, he said, everything in this book is mistaken. Even the title is false. We don't owe anybody anything, right? And that might seem to be an expression of the view that you mentioned. But in fact, it seems to me, I think people do sense that they owe other people something, but they're very sensitive about it, and they don't want to be accused of behaving wrongly in this respect. So now I'll go all political. If you look at a lot of the controversies that are out there today, having to do with global warming, Black Lives Matter, wearing masks and getting vaccinated, there's a lot of passion there. And it seems to me we have one party that is basically being very successful by taking David Gauthier's remark as their party platform. We don't owe anybody anything. But the reason why that is so appealing to people is because at some level they recognize that they do owe people something, right? They really don't think that it's okay to have unarmed young men shot in the back when they're not violently attacking the policemen. So they feel vulnerable to criticism on this point, but they really don't want to accept it, right? They don't want to accept that they ought to be doing something about global warming. They don't want to accept that they ought to do something about the police. They don't want to accept that they need to be paying higher taxes or whatever. So they're really sensitive on that point, but their very sensitivity reveals that they aren't like the person you mentioned. That is, a person who really sincerely, all the way down, thought, I don't owe anybody anything, wouldn't be bothered by that criticism, right? So, in the case of mask wearing, for example, what a trivial thing to have to do to wear a mask. It's a minor thing, and it's involved in a form of collective action that we need to prevent something really bad from happening. So, obviously, we ought to do it. But if they don't care about other people, that would explain why they don't wear masks, right? But that wouldn't explain why they rip the masks off of people whom they see wearing masks. They get angry at people wearing masks. If they were like the person you mentioned, they just didn't think they owed anybody anything, then whether anybody else wore a mask wouldn't matter, right? But the fact that other people wearing masks makes them angry, we have to explain that. And I think the reason is that they see that there's a real case for wearing a mask, but they don't want to do it. <laughs> and somebody else doing it suggests that they ought to be doing it too. And they don't like that suggestion, right? Just as in the case of Black Lives Matter, they don't like any suggestion that they are racist or supporting racist institutions. So they have to turn it around and say, well, all lives matter and accuse the Black Lives Matter people of themselves being racist. That's a way of avoiding the question by blaming the messenger, as it were, blaming the accuser. So all of these things seem to me to show that people really are very sensitive on this question. So the question that Socrates wanted to answer, which is how do you deal with a nearly sociopathic person, that's a problem, but it's not the problem we're mainly facing. Sorry about the political lecture, but there you go. I guess I would probably make the point a little bit differently, which is that I agree that the problem of a sociopath is real, but it's actually not the question that's worth asking from a point of view of moral philosophy for two reasons. The first is that most people are not sociopaths, and most people do care both about their fellow human beings and about what they feel they owe them. And second, that the sociopath is never going to be reachable by moral argument in any case. So in that sense, that is just the least likely audience you're going to reach. So insofar as you're hoping for reflection about morality to have a real impact in the world, it's perfectly fine to ignore the sociopath because that's the least likely audience in any case. But I suppose when I think of something like masks, you're sort of saying that there is sort of a moral set of reasons on one end, and then there's 
a sort of refusal to see morality, which in its vehemence shows a receptivity to moral reasoning or something like that. I wonder whether there isn't a different set of moral views there, which I mostly disagree with, but which is a set of moral views in itself. But there is a sense of the loss that comes from not seeing each other's faces, or there is a certain sense of the cultural traditions of a country that are somehow supposedly under threat by mask wearing. And that actually you can make the argument even more directly, which is not that this is moral reasons versus a sort of superficial refusal to see moral reasons, but it's actually two different moral conceptions of what matters clashing against each other, which one might be more convincing than the other, but they're actually both stated as sets of moral views. Yes, well, you put things much better than I do, as always, Yasha, and that's a good way to put it. I see that's a possibility, but I don't know whether it captures the anger. Again, if I'm a a moral minimalist, I care about what we owe to each other, but I don't think we owe them much of anything, right? I really sincerely believe that. I'm not quite certain why the fact that my neighbor holds a more expansive moral view would be a threat to me unless I feel it getting some purchase on me, right? But even so, that's my pushback. Isn't the answer to the anger, we have a culture here and you're destroying our culture. Now, that may be a claim of which there's good reason to be skeptical, but that seems like a relatively straightforward explanation of the anger. That's a possibility. I guess the idea that mask wearing is destroying the culture seems pretty implausible to me. So I didn't get to that. That's a reach. But yes, I see that. I certainly think, and this is what I've been working about in a second paper on tolerance, that the idea of preserving a culture and not wanting people to behave in public in ways that lead it to change is a very powerful one. I certainly agree about that. That would be an example of something that you can call it moral or not, but it's rather different from what I'm calling what we owe to each other, right? But it's certainly a powerful thing and it's very important to deal with. So let's dive into what we owe to each other first, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about tolerance after that. So how then do we actually think about what we owe to people in concrete situations? I agree with you that this is a question that animates people a lot. One of my favorite pieces of reading when I'm you know, on public transport, I have 10 minutes to kill, is to read Am I the Asshole, which is a community on Reddit where people really are trying to figure out, hey, in this situation, I did something, I think it's okay, but people around me are telling me, I'm being an asshole, which is, you know, colloquial for you're acting immorally. And what do you think? Am I being reasonable or not? How should people go about answering those questions according to the substantive views you've developed in this work? I want to analyze everything down to the idea of a reason at the most basic level. Is this something a person on the receiving end of my conduct would reasonably reject? I have to ask, what reason do they have to object to what I'm doing? And what's my counter? So I have to compare the cost to me of giving up my claim with the cost to them of doing it. So that's familiar from the old uh, golden rule, but modified in various ways. It's not what the person actually likes or would enjoy, but it's what it's the normative question, as I would call it. What reason do they really have, given how they would be affected to object to what I'm doing and what reason do I have? So there's a crucial difference there between how I feel, how I would like to be treated on the one hand, the question of what reason do I have to not want to be treated that way? So there's an irreducible question, which isn't a psychological question, isn't a question about how I feel, but it's a question about 
I would say, the truth of the matter about <laughs> what I have a reason to do. Now, some people may just reject that whole idea of a reason, which is at the basis of my whole philosophical outlook. We could talk about that if you if you wanted to, but that's where it bottoms out. That's the kind of thinking I think that we should engage in, and, and it seems to me, I think it's something that people often do engage in, although I may be kidding myself. So I think the basic framework is very intuitive to people that if you do something and somebody objects to what you do, they have to have a reason for why they object. And when you get ability to respond, and if it feels like their objection to what you do cannot be properly responded to, then probably what you've done is wrong. There is a word that is very crucial in that, that's key to your philosophy, but that's also often used by John Rawls in a more political context, which is this reasonably, right? Is it something that they can reasonably reject? And something that I found in talking about political liberalism of people a lot is that that word triggers them a little bit. They say, well, hang on a second. What do you mean by reasonably? Doesn't that just reduce to what our norms are? Or doesn't that just reduce to what in a particular social context we're used to? Isn't all of the work being done by that little adjective that actually just smuggles in arbitrary conventions in order to answer the question? So how do you respond to that? What determines whether an objection that somebody makes to your behavior is reasonable or not? Nietzsche had this famous idea, famous thought experiment of eternal return. You see, it was a test of whether you love your life, that you could stand to have it replayed over and over and over and over again infinitely. I don't know whether I accept that as a test of adequately loving your life, but it is something maybe you should think of before you write a phrase. That is, do you want to have people ask you, do you want to have to defend this phrase over and over again in perpetuity? Let's not make them a test, otherwise I'll never write a single word ever again. That's right. But one of the problems with the idea of reasonableness, like a lot of other heavy words, is that it is subject to a number of different interpretations, right? And in some of them, as your imagined interlocutor says, just have quite a lot of moral content built into them. And I think that's true of the particular use that Rawls makes of it in political liberalism, if we want to go there, right? Not an objection to what he said, I think. We could talk about that if you wanted. But I try in my book and in subsequent attempts to repaint it and touch it up and so on. Here's a common idea of reasonableness. It was reasonable for me to think that you would be ready to click on when I clicked on my Zoom link at 12 o'clock. That's a judgment about what I had good reason to think, given what I knew right? You had given me certain information, right? In the absence of other information, it was reasonable to think that if I clicked on the Zoom, I'd find you there, right? And vice versa with me. So in that sense of reasonable, what it's reasonable to think or reasonable to do is what you have sufficient reason to do given a certain circumscribed set of considerations, which are taken to be the relevant ones. So in my book, when I talk about principles you couldn't reasonably reject, it's principles that you had sufficient reason to reject, given the reason you have to want not to be treated in a certain way, and the reasons that others have to object to that, right? So the moral content, as it were, comes not via the idea of reasonableness, but by, as it were, the way of defining what the relevant set of considerations are. So there is certainly is a moral framework there, which is not just presupposed, but openly, as it were, held up to the public and avowed. 
But I think the idea of reasonableness isn't actually doing the work. What's been doing the work is this particular structure. So I could have said what you had sufficient reason to do, taking into account the reasons that a person in your position has and the reasons that another person has, and maybe also the idea that there's good reason to try to find something that neither one could object to, right? So there's a specification. And the moral content is to say, these are the things you ought to think about. And then reasonableness is just the idea of what you have sufficient reason to do, focusing on that. That's the idea. Rawls's idea of a reasonable, comprehensive view is one that is unwilling to force other people to do certain things. So it has quite a lot of content built into it, which is, I think, not an objection to it in the context because it's not part of a moral theory, as it were. It's part of an answer to a sociological question about whether a certain kind of society would be stable and how many different outlooks are there such that if those outlooks prevail, the society will be stable. Is it just one or two or are there many outlooks? And he thinks, well, there are many outlooks that embody enough of what he called reciprocity or whatever that a society founded on these principles, could be stable if most people held views of that broad kind. He certainly believes that views of that broad kind are more morally defensible than others, but he's not actually arguing that, right? (laughs) He's just saying there are many different views that would support this. As I understand it in rules, what determines whether what he calls a comprehensive doctrine, which is to say a basic outlook on life, something like a religious set of convictions, is reasonable or not does not turn even on whether it is true, right? So it may be true that believing in the right set of theological doctrines determines whether you will go to heaven or hell. And it may be true that you're only likely to continue practicing religion in the required way if everybody else around you does too. And that may even give you very strong reason to go around and proselytize your fellow citizens if necessary by the force of guns. All of that may be true, it would nevertheless be an unreasonable comprehensive doctrine in Rawls' sense because it would not allow for the coexistence of people who believe in this set of ideas and people who do not. So that has a very specific meaning in, in that context. To go deeper into what we've just been talking about, so when you talk about reasonable, you're not building in a whole set of views for way Rawls is. You're just saying, well, do you have strong enough reasons to reject this particular action. Talk us through how you would puzzle through a particular moral dilemma. So I'm just coming up with one on the fly. Let's say that there's, you know, a particular bookstore that you value in your neighborhood. You've been a customer of it for a long time. The books there are a little bit more expensive than they are on Amazon. It's a little bit more hassle to walk down to the bookstore and pick up a book than it is to click on something on your phone. And eventually you say, ah, you know, I mean, I'm glad that other people are buying those books so that I can go and browse books in the bookstore every now and again. I'm glad to have it in my neighborhood, but actually I'm just going to buy my books on Amazon. How would you puzzle through whether or not the person who does this is failing to do what you owe is in this case, presumably to the owner of a bookstore or perhaps the wider community in which he lives? Well, that's a great example, Yasha, and it gets us really to the core of what we were talking about earlier when we were talking about mask wearing. That is, here's a principle. If a pattern of acting, a way of deciding what to do, is one that we all need to accept in order to prevent something very bad from happening to us, prevent the floodwaters from destroying our town, we need to build up the dikes or whatever it might be, right? Something really important, or we need to all wear masks in order to prevent our economy from being ground to a halt by the fact that everybody's getting sick. If you have a situation where you need some form of 
everybody thinking in the same way and cooperating in order to prevent something bad from happening. And a way of doing that is proposed and is being generally complied with. It isn't unfair and doesn't require a sacrifice that's too great in relation to the harm in question, then it's wrong not to go along with it. And I think that applies to mask wearing and getting vaccinated and so on. Now, Rawls had something rather close to this in his book, which was called The Principle of Fairness, although it was a little bit different in ways that I'll mention. Nozick, in his famous response to Rawls in Anarchy, State, and Utopia, supposed that Rawls was using what he called the principle of fairness as a justification for the state, which he actually wasn't. But at any event, Nozick proposed an interesting counterexample to that principle, which said, if you voluntarily accept the benefits of some fair practice, then it's wrong not to go along with it. He said, well, suppose there's a network of speakers, this was old technology, speakers in your neighborhood, and one of your neighbors sets up a practice of providing entertainment, taking turns, reading poetry, telling stories, doing stand-up comedy, playing music, whatever it might be, to provide people with, and they post a list of assigning everybody a time to do this, right? And a few weeks go by, and you've actually enjoyed hearing what your neighbor do, but you don't want to do it. Either you're shy or you've got something else to do that afternoon. And so you say, what the heck? And Nozick thinks that's obviously okay. Now, I didn't generally agree with Nozick, but actually I think he was right about that or something very close to being right about that because the goal of providing entertainment to people isn't sufficiently important to justify a set of institutions that basically conscripts people without offering them any alternatives and so on like that. So in fact, the institution was unfair, although he said it was fair because it assigned everybody the same number of hours of contributing, but that didn't capture it all, right? So if an institution doesn't serve a sufficiently important purpose to justify what they're imposing on you, then you don't have an obligation to go behind it. Okay, so your bookstore example, you might see somewhere in between Nozick's thing and the floodwaters, or I would say COVID-19 right? And you might say, you know, I don't think there's a moral obligation. I mean, suppose you didn't particularly yourself enjoy going to the bookstore, but you could see that it was an important thing. But nonetheless, if somebody wants to start a bookstore, they can start a bookstore. And that doesn't conscript people to start buying their books there. So what makes the example a little hard is the question, is the justification for having this rule of collective action, buy your books from Joe rather than from Jeff Bezos, be something that everybody's got to go along with? And I think it's not obvious, but I think it is obvious in the case of mask wearing, getting vaccinated, and so on, although a lot of people don't want to do it. So I was once interviewed on a program on one of the local NPR stations, WBUR, on a program that also involved Mike Schur, the showrunner of The Good Place. And we got talking about COVID and people. And so what I said is, COVID-19 is an NPR fundraiser on steroids. That is, the principle is, when is it the case that if there's a pattern of collective behavior that's needed for some goal, not unfair, do I have to go along with it whether I want to or not? And that seems to me an important moral principle. And I think it's probably a theorem of Kant's moral philosophy. You could get almost all philosophers on board with it in one way or another. But also, it seems to me, once you formulate it, it's intuitively obvious, as I would put it, that the goal is really important. The cost is not very high and relation to the goal, the distribution of costs is not unfair, then it's wrong. But of course, that's pretty obvious, but it's obvious because it, as it were, outsources the question of how important is the goal, how burdensome is the thing, is this really unfair, or whatever, and forces you to put your attention onto those questions, right? So I think it's a useful method of thought, even though it doesn't actually dictate an answer, it provides you with the right mm. kind of framework for thinking about what the answer is.
That, I think, is a very important point where we sometimes seem to demand from our moral concepts that they allow us to look at the world and always have one very straightforward and obvious answer. But that, of course, is not the case. There's always going to be circumstances in which different moral considerations weigh against each other in a very significant way. And what we should ask of a moral theory such as yours is not whether it makes all of those things easy and we always know exactly what to do, it's whether we feel like it allows us to express the nature of a moral conflict in ways that are coherent. And in the same way, I think one way of judging a moral theory to be faulty is if it forces you to puzzle through things in the world in ways that seem really unintuitive and go against the grain of what we should actually care about, which is one of the things that I worry about with a lot of the contemporary political language, including some of the contemporary political language on the left, we were forced to see things through categories that don't actually seem to be dispositive of what we're trying to think about. But I want to make sure that we make your answer to this, which was really interesting, a little bit more concrete. So let me try and talk through this and you stop me when I go wrong. So let's say I say, look, I'm going to cheat my taxes because who cares, you know, how is it going to affect anybody? I like money, right? And then you say, well, hang on a second. Actually, we're using this tax money for really important things like flood defenses. And if a lot of people like you cheated on the taxes, then, you know, our city would get flooded and that's really bad, right? So I guess what would happen if I respond saying, well, oh, well, but not everybody is going to cheat on their taxes, me cheating on the tax is not going to stop the flood walls from going up. So who cares? Why is it that there you would say the objection is more reasonable than my response to it? Two things, which will probably sound evasive as an answer. One is that it's common to put all these things in terms of the scene in which I'm trying to convince somebody else what to do. And whatever that person just refuses to accept, so on. I think that's kind of a mugs game, although it's not totally unimportant, because basically what we're trying to do is to make up our own mind how to think about what we ought to support and what we're going to do and how we're going to react to people who aren't doing it. How should we think of them and so on. So I think that always putting things in terms of how could I respond to what so-and-so says, I can say, well, I think they don't have sufficient reason to do that, right? That's why it's wrong for them to do that. So I would put the question, well, you're right. One person helping or not helping, one person worrying about it's not going to make or break, right? But let's think about the principle. It's okay not to do it. If it's okay not to do it, a lot of people are going to not do it, right? So the idea of if you give one person permission to opt out, so the question isn't, are they going to opt out? The question is, do they have sufficient reason not to opt out? And here's a reason, right? That is, if you opt out, the principle allowing you to opt out is one that we couldn't reasonably accept, right? Or we'd have reason to reject. And just to go back to my formulation of the principle, though, I will just say one thing. That is, putting things in the terms of the way I put them, that is, how important is the threat? Is some collective action really necessary? How burdensome is it? And is it fair, right? Those are the three things I mentioned, right? I think that's very commonsensical, but it divides some of the questions that come up in the case of the COVID epidemic, right? So the mask wearing and vaccinating are obviously not unfair and so on, but lockdowns are another matter, right? As I said, when we were talking at the beginning, lockdown doesn't really bother me. I'm retired. I get my check no matter what I do. I can have groceries delivered and so on. But the 
people who've got to deliver the groceries and have any groceries themselves are in a different uh, situation. They're taking risks and so on. So there's a real question of whether it is fair, those lockdown measures, and also people whose businesses are interrupted because they can't keep in business. They may lose their business. There's a question. So it seems to me that if you look at it that way, in terms of the formula that I mentioned, then instead of thinking, well, we got to fight this pandemic, and then later we'll have an economic stimulus program, which will try to rebuild the economy, right? But those aren't two different things, because part of what comes under the rebuilding the economy is making this way of combating the pandemic not unfair. It would be like having a system of rebuilding the dikes that said, well, people who are capable of heavy lifting will do all this uncompensated work and the rest of us will benefit. <laughs> You'd have to have some kind of compensation in order to make that not unfair. So I'm just trying to defend myself, formulating it in terms of general principles and thinking, well, what would the principle have to be like in order to not to be one that somebody could reasonably reject can have an effect on how you ought to think about what policy we ought to have. But you only reach that conclusion if you start off by caring about whether I could find a general principle that would allow it. That's true. <laughs> and so just to bring it full circle to do the disanalogy between the dike that saves us from the flooding and the case of the bookstore, in that case, I'll say, look, yeah, I like the existence of this bookstore, but I'm lazy. I'm going to buy this book on Amazon. And the owner of a bookstore will say something like, and I, I realize this is not an actual conversation. Yeah, I'm yeah, sort of yeah, dramatizing yeah. it in my own mind. But the objection goes something like, well, hang on a second, you get some benefits from this bookstore and you'd be sad if this bookstore didn't exist and the bookstore is good for the community. How can you not do your part to help keep it up? And in that case, the response to the objection is something like, sure, it's nice to have a bookstore, but it's not that important. And it, there's an important principle of being able to purchase things on the market and that actually might help us produce goods more cheaply and actually might allow people to read more books and have all kinds of other benefits. And look, I'd be very sad if this bookstore ceased to exist, but I don't think that's enough for me to somehow be morally under duress not to buy goods wherever I choose them as our economic system allows or something like that. So is that, broadly speaking, the right way of thinking through that case? Well, that is, although it leaves out one important distinction, which is very appropriately built into your example. There might say two different ways of looking at this. One way you could look at it in terms of, as it were, moral philosophy, is it wrong for people not to support the bookstore? And you might put that in terms of how good a thing is it that there be a bookstore in town and how much more would I have to pay to go to the bookstore rather than go on Amazon and so on. But that wouldn't say anything about whether I actually read any books right? Because the importance of the bookstore existing doesn't depend on whether I actually ever buy any books at all. But if it really is important that there be a bookstore, then we could do it. But there's another subjective reading. If you yourself want there to be a bookstore, you actually like it and you benefit from it, this goes back to the way Rawls stated it, if you voluntarily accept the benefits, right? Then you're being inconsistent yourself in wanting this good. So that, as it were, short circuits the question of how important is it objectively as compared to this. It is, are you being consistent if you want there to be this, but you aren't willing to do what's necessary in order to have it continue to exist, right? And so I think that there's an ambiguity between between us, more, a more objective reading of the over thing, which is the way I was putting it in terms of the floodwaters example, and indeed COVID, versus the more subjective, are you being inconsistent if you want to take advantage of something, but you don't want to behave in a way that is necessary to have that thing be available? 
Oh, that's very interesting. Thank you. I'm glad to be reminded of my time listening to your actual lectures. Another thing that people often grapple with when they think about what the role of moral philosophy is and why it is that we should and whether we should engage in it in the first place is the problem of free will. So there's an objection to this whole enterprise, which says, roughly speaking, that how we act is determined by a set of physical processes. The sort of thoughts we have are epiphenomenal. And that means that any attempt to judge people morally or to reflect on what we do is actually besides the point. We're going to do what we're going to do anyway. So what's the point of reflecting too much? And we can't judge somebody to be morally good or bad or particular actions to be morally good or bad because they're just the result of the particular ways in which particular molecules bump into each other in the brain, which are all things that were determined well before they came to be alive. So why care about any of this? So what is, in the words or in the title of one of your papers, the significance of the choices we made? Why is it that we should care about this despite this objection from the causal determinist? In one sense, I agree with that view. That is, I think there's no such thing as free will. But I also disagree with many people in thinking that the fact that we don't have free will doesn't really matter. And there are two, as it were, points of view from which it might matter. One that you mentioned has to do with morally judging other people. My moral reactions to other people depend on not just what they're doing, but why they're doing it. I care if a person only gives me correct change because he's afraid of the police or something, then I don't like my relation with him. He's got a bad attitude toward me and I judge him negatively. That he has that attitude and it's expressed in his actions is a fact, whatever the cause of it might be. It might be determined by the Big Bang, right, or by what he ate for breakfast. But nonetheless, he's like that, right? And the fact that he's like that has a significance for how I can understand our relation with each other, what's going on when we're interacting. That remains important, right? So that's one dimension. Other dimension is, well, but maybe I shouldn't uh, even think about deciding what to do because it's all determined. Well, what I do is going to depend on what I decide, right? So the process of thinking might say you can't get out of it. But from your point of view, there's also the question of whether the fact that I agreed to something, made a promise or something like that, could have any binding effect given that I was caused to do it. And I want to say, well, one of the things we want is to have the option of opting out of obligations and to have some obligations be ones that we wouldn't have if we didn't want to have them. And that can be important to us, even if we're caused to act one way or the other. If we avoid an obligation because we don't like it, the fact that we don't like it is something. And the fact that can be true of us, even if we were caused not to like it, and the fact that I would be happier if I didn't have that obligation is still going to be true. And so if I have the obligation only if I don't reject it, then it's more likely that I won't have it, right? So it's a benefit to me. So the case of the shopkeeper and the case of the person wanting to avoid the obligation are alike in this respect. That is, in both cases, having what happens depend upon how he responds or how he acts is significant. In one case, it's significant for the other person. For me, it matters to me whether he's acting out of conscientiousness or just being sly. But also from my point of view, it matters to me that my obligations reflect my preferences because they're my preferences. So in each case, my preferences are important to me and I want them reflected in how my life goes. That's one thing. And my preferences are important to you because they determine what kind of guy I am and what meaning my actions have when I'm interacting with you. So in each case, my preferences or my feelings or whatever they are, are important, despite the fact that they're caused, both for me and for the person who's judging me morally. That's my story in not exactly a nutshell, but maybe a small boat. 
<laughs> when I read that paper, it really blew my mind because it's written in a very minimalist way and it took me a while to quite understand how important it is, how it changes the way we see things. Because I had also grappled for a long time with this problem of thinking, well, if I have a friend who is really, really nice, well, perhaps there's this cause to be nice and why should I be grateful to him for that? And if I have somebody in my life who behaves like a real asshole all the time, well, you know, perhaps they suffered from hardship as a child or perhaps they have genes that predispose them to be, you know, abrasive or perhaps there's something else going on and how could I blame them for it? And to sort of recover the way in which we should treat each other even if something like causal determinism is true, I think is a really big contribution. What are the limits of that? Which is to say, does it imply a division between certain forms of moral judgments or certain forms of legal consequences which are appropriate, given that somebody didn't choose to have a certain set of attitudes or behaviors, but does in fact display them, and others that this background fact makes illegitimate? Well, it does have limits. I'm not certain that I would put it in just that way. I mean, certainly I think that most dominant forms of criminal punishment that we're now seeing in our country are unjustifiable. But that's because imposing that high a cost on people for those choices under the circumstance they make that is unjustifiable. Now, I think a lot of thinking about moral responsibility construes all moral criticism as a kind of punishment or as a kind of sanction. And that seems to me to be a mistake. But certainly, there are cases where we impose sanctions like three strikes and you're out and so on, on people that aren't justified. But what makes them unjustified isn't the fact that we lack free will. It's that, number one, they are grossly too large in relation to the thing they're trying to affect, number one. And number two, the people to whom they are applied are often in positions where they have relatively few options and maybe not much opportunity to develop better habits and so on. So the value of choice to them, if they're being undeterrable, is a cost to the person. The fact that you can't be punished for something unless you chose to do it is a kind of protection because I can see, okay, I'm going to be punished if I do that and that deters me, right? But being undeterrable is a danger to me. And if I grow up in circumstances that make me undeterrable, that's something very bad for me as well as for you. And so as one of the things we owe to people is to try as best we can to, as it were, put them in situations where they will develop the right kind of responses. But that's not under their control, but it is something that it is under our control as a society. So the problem isn't the lack of free will. The problem is the lack of thinking about what the conditions are under which people are making these choices. And do those choices actually have value for them given the circumstances under which they are? Do they have sufficient value to justify the enormity of the cost that's imposed on them by these penalties? You are primarily a moral philosopher, but you do, of course, write about more strictly political philosophy as well. And there's two topics in particular I want to cover before we close the conversation. One is, and this is something that I think about a lot in my new book, which is out in English in a few months, you know, how we can deal with increasingly ethnically, religiously, and to some extent culturally diverse societies, and what the demands of us, why that can be so difficult and how to think about how to keep those societies functioning. So you have some reflections on the case of tolerance, but also the difficulty of tolerance. How can that help us think through how to make a country like the United States work at a moment in which we're dealing with much more diversity than we've had throughout much of our history and an attempt for the first time to actually treat all of the members of our society as true equals? 
Well, if I had words to say that would make that problem less difficult, <laughs> I'd be a magician, not just a philosopher. So what can I say? Well, I wrote two papers called The Difficulty of Tolerance, and the kind of tolerance I had in mind wasn't just being tolerant in the sense of not being prejudiced or being tolerant in the sense of not trying to control other people's private lives or the way Mill talked about, but being tolerant in the sense of allowing the public expression of these different attitudes and not trying to curb it in order to keep the society the way I like it, right? And so I think that has costs. I think a lot of the things that the people are saying on the religious right now is, look, we feel that allowing free expression and gay people to hold hands in public is changing the norms of society and is changing the society in a way we don't like. So we're losing on the cultural front. I think that's what people feel. And the reason I call Thomas difficult is I think it's not just that they're losing, but that a free society is a society in which we are all at risk of losing in all kinds of different ways. Like there are many things about society that I don't like. Maybe I would agree with some of the people on the Christian right. That is, I think that the society is obsessed with sex in a way that seems to me excessive. It's not having to do with the kind of sex. Uh, I don't care at all about that, but just the fact that being sexually attractive and successful is treated as being so vastly important. It's like being too ambitious. It's a mistake about what's valuable in life, and on one hand, and it's a mistake that leads you to mistreat other people, to cheat your competitors and your employees in the case of ambition, and to mistreat your sexual partners in the case of an excessive concern with being sexually attractive and in control and all those things. So I might agree with him about that. So we all have things that are at stake. So the question is, why should we be tolerant in this sense, given that we have something important at stake? And what I try to say is, well, you have to think about what it is that's at stake. And I think what's at stake is a public culture that we are all affected by in the same way and that we collectively produce. Some of us have more influence than others, but it's a matter of how we are all behaving, what we are buying, what we're doing, and so on. So if you focus on it as a collective product, you have to see, look, it's something that we are all entitled to try to contribute to. It isn't owned by anybody. And so it's part of what we owe to each other that we should allow other people to express their religious views in public, to express their identity and other forms in public. And that's, as it were, part of what we owe to them. So I think that's a different way of basing tolerance than something like John Stuart Mill said, we should be tolerant because being tolerant of individual differences is going to lead to the greatest happiness. I have no idea whether it would or not. That seems to me unrealistic. Or we could say, you know, sometimes people on the right say this, that liberals favor individual liberty and tolerance only because they see that they're winning the culture wars under those rules. So that's just a cynical, opportunistic thing. So we should be cynical and opportunistic in the other way, right? So I think the second, very dangerously mistaken, and the first also unrealistic, right? So the alternative is to say, look, how do we think about what's at stake and the reasons we have for caring about it in a way that takes everybody's reasons into account? That's what we need to have in order to have a functioning society. We have to see it as something that everybody has reasons to participate in under the rules that we lay down. And so in order to be justifiable, those rules have to be ones that could be justified taking everybody's reasons into account. That is to say, my reasons for wanting to express my values and your reasons for wanting to express your values. So what we take into account there is not the correctness of my view and the correctness of your view, but rather 
your reason, given that you have to live here, and my reason, given that I have to live here, to want to be able to have an effect on what things are right. One thing that I think everybody ought to read, although very few people do, is Karl Marx's famous essay on the Jewish question, which starts off him responding to Bruno Bauer, who says, it's inconsistent for Jews to ask for toleration because toleration treats all religions as equal, whereas you couldn't treat all religions as equal without abandoning your religion. I mean, he puts this in terms of being Jewish. He said you couldn't be Jewish while seeing all religions as equal. But and that sounds anti-Semitic, and maybe he was anti-Semitic, but in fact, the point generalizes, right? It's true of any religion that you can't see it as equivalent to others without, in a certain sense, not really being committed to it. But Marx said, look, what tolerance requires is not seeing all religions as equal. It rather regards seeing religion as not mattering for purposes of public justification. What matters for purposes of legal and public argument and your rights have to do with your interests as a citizen, not your particular religious commitments. Marx was no fan of liberalism, but this was kind of one cheer or maybe a cheer and a half for liberalism. <laughs> There's something right about it, right? It is a kind of advance to get beyond this tribalism and try to live under common rules, even though that still leaves you alienated by these differences. So true emancipation would go farther, but this isn't something you should reject. But that idea seems to me really a deep and important insight. And if you could get people to look at it that way, that might be some help, although I'm not holding out a lot of hope of that, but that's right. Well, in a similar way, Marx had at least two cheers for capitalism, right? Which he obviously opposed and hoped to move beyond, but also thought was a huge improvement on feudalism, which is a very basic point about Marx's outlook on history that people often miss. I'm trying to think through how this argument for toleration would hold up to some of the objections to it, which I see not just from the religious right, but also, for example, on campus these days, where some people might say, look, you're talking about the interests of us as citizens to be able to express our views and participate in public debate and so on. But, you know, what about the expressions of opinion, which actually sort of are so hurtful or so harmful and some really broad conception of harm that they, you know, should be forbidden? How is it that I can see how something like Mill's conception of tolerance and particularly Mill's worries about us potentially being wrong about what is true or false, as having often changed our mind historically about what the important considerations are, about the importance of even if a point of view is wrong, it's actually helping us understand why what we believe is right because we have formulated in response. I can see how all of those are effective responses to this worry about some diffuse form of harm. I wonder how you would respond to it from within your framework about why tolerance matters. Well, take a step back to what I said about tolerance, and then I'll zero in on this question. I said it's important to see what we're concerned about, namely the nature of our society, and what reason we have to care about it. So I think I have an important reason to care that there are at least some other people out there who share my outlook, right, than my religion or whatever. I have much less reason to want my outlook to be the one that you have to have in order to be an American, right? In fact, I think I have no good reason to do that. So I don't have a good reason to want my outlook to be the norm in that sense. And I think that's something you really have to ask people to back off from and to focus on it to see that I don't have a strong reason to want that as I thought I did. But on the other hand, we want tolerance to be a norm. We want the idea that all the people are equal to be a, somehow a norm. So are we being inconsistent about that, right? And I've been in historically 
a free speech hardliner and therefore not very sympathetic to arguments for restricting hate speech, although I think it's a difficult empirical question whether laws restricting hate speech actually do good. And my view about free speech makes it heavily dependent on these empirical questions, as you probably know. But I think that the best argument I know in favor of hate speech laws is the one put forward by Jeremy Waldron in his book, The Harm in Hate Speech. And he said that the point is what you have to have is a society in which everybody has dignity. And having dignity has two things. One, it's being generally recognized as a full member of society with equal rights. Number two, that's a social fact. And second, having justified confidence that you are so recognized. And he argues persuasively that it's a terrifically important thing in a society that everybody should have what he calls dignity in that sense. And he thinks that the main argument for restricting hate speech is that it undermines people's dignity. And that seems to me the most powerful argument. But I accept it up to a point. I think that that justifies the laws restricting things like direct insult, going up to people and saying, why don't you go back where you belong, you know, and so on, and other kinds of direct insult of this kind. But on the other hand, if a norm of dignity is really going to be widely accepted, it has to be something people can argue about. It's not going to have that status unless people can argue about it, right? So I think you have to allow people to question it. I think that articles written defending more unified, less diverse society and arguing against the immigration and so on, I think you have to be able to make those arguments because those are fundamental questions that have to be open for discussion. So there's a difference between some things that can be restricted, that is as a direct assault on the person, and on the other hand, some kind of argument about these things. So what do we say about how to preserve dignity? I think the answer is that the idea of preserving dignity by having laws banning expressions is a kind of attempt to outsource to the government the job of maintaining dignity, whereas it's really a job that belongs to all of us. So we have to all speak up against this, because what people need to have in order to have dignity is to have assurance that they are so regarded by most people. And they're more likely to have that assurance if most people take that line, right? So I think the task of doing it really fundamentally belongs to us, which I'm sure will be seen by the people I'll get complaints if you put this on YouTube, but I do think that some restrictions are certainly justified, but I think on the other hand, some kinds of debate about these things has to be allowed, and what we have to do is to answer that debate, and people need to be given good reason by all of us to believe that they are regarded as full and equal members of society. Perfect. So you're talking about full and equal members of society, and as a last question, very simple, easy, straightforward question, two minutes at the end. What does it mean to be equal? Why is it that a form of equality matters? And what are its implications? Very simple question. <laughs> the book I wrote on that is very short. But the kind of equality that's at stake here is being seen by most people as someone who is worth associating with, a person you would want to live next door to or work in the same workplace with or go to school with. And so on. I think that kind of acceptance, as well as political rights, which, of course, should go without saying, that's the kind of standing that's most directly at issue. And that's a very contested question in our society, unfortunately. Tim Scannon, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You're welcome, Yasha. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. 
And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.